0: Welcome to the Resilience Rising podcast with me, your host, Jen Scottney. With the help of my guests, we will be getting curious about what resilience is, how we develop it, and the times we've used it. This podcast is here to explore all things resilience. I'm here with Dr. Martin Brunet. Martin has worked in practices as a GP for 22 years. He also teaches GPs and other healthcare professionals in primary care about the consultation and how they communicate with their patients, as well as writing a book called The GP Consultation Reimagined, A Tale of Two Houses. His Instagram account has nearly 70,000 followers and on social media as Doc Martin GP, he aims to educate us all on our mental health, where he demystifies and explains concepts to us in a way that makes sense and is memorable. A post about burnout, compassionately identifying some of the characteristics of those who are commonly at risk, caught my attention and led me to contact Martin, both to ask if he would come on the podcast and also to say, I wish he had been my GP 10 years ago. He's currently writing his second book about anxiety and fear. He says, I wouldn't describe myself as a mental health expert, just a GP who finds mental health interesting and his patients' experiences fascinating to learn from. Welcome to the podcast, Martin.
1: Well, thank you very much for inviting me, Jen. I'm delighted to be here.
0: Oh, I love your videos and I love your posts. Thank you so much for doing those. How, how did that come about? Did you just feel there was a need to, um, to help educate people?
1: Yeah, I think I think from that, I think as a GP, you really spot patterns because you're used to seeing lots of patients often about similar things. And particularly with mental health, finding myself saying the same sort of things to patient after patient who were quite often, for understandable reasons, making the same mistakes, the same wrong assumptions, and just thinking, actually, I'd like to get that out there. So I've, I've done some talks on anxiety and depression over the years and sometimes have people come and say, wow, that was really helpful. And then I thought, well, actually, I'd quite like to write about it. And then doing some videos on social media was, was an obvious next thing to do. So and uh. thank you for your kind words about them. And, and they're fun. What, what's interesting is having to say something in a minute, minute and a half maximum is quite a discipline. And it it then makes me think about it. And it's changed my own thinking, just having to do them and hearing people's response. So I'm learning through it as well. <laughs> Um,
0: which is great yeah it must be a real skill especially when there's such complex issues that you're trying to distill and I think the post that I referred to about burnout I think you'd also mentioned the word resilience which always kind of catches my attention and I think you talked about a resilient as potentially being a toxic word so I was really interested in yeah what you think resilience is or maybe what it isn't
1: yeah. So should I tackle that first and then we'll maybe talk about burnout?
0: Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I, I have a real ambivalence with how I feel about the word resilience, I think. And it's partly because of the experience in the NHS and partly a, a bit of my personal experience with burnout. So within the NHS, there was um, quite a push for resilience training within the last two or three years and there's a whole lot of difference between an individual thinking how do I help build my own resilience by listening to your podcast or you know finding out what's out there getting advice understanding myself better it's very different to an organization that's under an awful lot of pressure and stress hearing that its workforce is struggling and saying ah oh, the way we're going to solve your problem is not to actually give you more staff or make the job job workable but to send you on a resilience training course um, and that seemed to be the nhs's response um over the last two or three years a bit less now and then it a lot of those courses were great they actually were good courses but the idea that someone was saying "Well, i'm not going to make your job any easier i'm just going to make you more resilient implies that you're the problem and uh, if only the nhs staff were stronger and tougher then they wouldn't complain as much so that kind of has created a bit of a um uh, yeah i toxicity is a very strong word maybe it's not as strong as that but certainly a lot of people in the NHS hear the word resilience and and sort of it doesn't have good connotations because of that even though quite a lot of the training was very good so so I have to sort of overcome that and know that a lot of other people in the NHS have felt that and then my own feeling about the word I mean in many ways it's a great word who wouldn't want to be resilient um but it you know, what does it conjure to me? You know, it conjures feelings of, of sort of toughness, being able to withstand knocks, which you do want. But the trouble is people often think, well, to be resilient, I've just got to be tough. <laughs> and that's often the problem because it's that misunderstanding about toughness that often leads to burnout. And which is what post was about.
0: Yes. And I'm guessing that well, burnout isn't a, a medical diagnosis. So what what is burnout? in terms of yeah. your experience
1: so yeah burnout absolutely isn't a medical term but it's quite a useful term um, and I, I find it's not it's quite descriptive um, and it's when someone basically becomes overwhelmed it's it's like I, I liken it to your hard drive on your computer sometimes your hard drive um, is completely fine it's 70 80 percent full but when it gets to full, it falls over. And all of a sudden you're trying to type something and it's taking, you know, minutes to write a sentence because the computers just can't work. Um, and it's, it's like that. It's like that where you're working, you're thriving, you're, you're being very productive, but you're getting stressed. And then quite quickly it reaches a tipping point where, like the computer just suddenly falls over you, you suddenly all over in a sense so you 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 maybe have a panic attack on the way to work or you just can't you get sent home from work because you're in bits or you just can't face you open your computer and you just cannot bear the idea of looking at your emails and and it's becoming overwhelmed and that potentially might then be the the first sign of a clinical depression it might be you know just a warning sign that actually you've got to stop breathe make some changes and you'll be okay. So I wouldn't say burnout is always depression, but that's where it's going to end. Depression depression, and anxiety would be the clinical diagnosis it can lead to.
0: And I guess going back to that idea of the resilience and that we should be tough and withstanding it, that was definitely something when I was experiencing that, that I I felt ashamed or that I was weak, that everybody else could cope and I couldn't and I think that was something that you were talking about in that post that I mentioned but in other ones as well so what was it that you saw in those patterns of people that were either at risk of this or, or heading in that way
1: yeah so very commonly they would say to me but I'm not the sort of person to get depressed and they would just be bewildered that it had happened to them because of this impression that somehow depression is a sign of weakness and that You know, they they don't see themselves as as weak. And actually that's because they're not weak. Um, They're the sort of person that's very, usually very capable, um, very. So if I describe the personality of a typical person who may get burnt out, um, they often have, they set high standards. They care a lot. They want to do well. They want to look out for people. They don't like to let people down. So maybe they don't delegate um, easily. They, they don't delegate because they don't want to dump on other people. They don't want to let people down, but they also want to set high standards. And often if you do it yourself, you know, it's going to be done properly. And when the tough, when the going gets tough, they just pedal harder and they just keep going. Um, and very often because they're very capable, they get asked to do stuff by people. You know, people say, Oh, Jen will do it. She's good. Yeah. No, Jen, she's fine. Yeah. She'll take that on. Ask Jen and the family would come, you know, to you as well, maybe or, or to this sort of person. And then eventually you you fall over the other thing sometimes this sort of person would also be a bit vulnerable to um, to criticism because they care and sometimes self-criticism that can be quite hard on themselves and I, I have to give credit here that this my understanding of this is built on a um a book that's been around a long time by uh, a psychiatrist tim canterfer it's called depressive illness the curse of the strong um, i remember hearing him speak years ago and just thinking wow this makes a lot of sense." And then, since then, it's been borne out with my patients, so it's that sense of bewilderment and confusion that how did this happen to them that makes me know that a lot of people have a misunderstanding about burnout and depression and mental health, and until it happens to them, you know they're in blissful ignorance, but then it knocks them over like a train
0: i mean a hundred percent that was completely me, but I guess when i was going to my doctor with some very severe fatigue and symptoms at no point was i asked about any of those areas of my life i wasn't really asked much i was just given blood tests and then told there's nothing wrong with me so i guess in your practice do you see a bit of a disconnection with what's happening in those gp consulting rooms and and really what you'd want to happen how do you I approach think, those people that yeah. come to you
1: i think we still have this prejudice where somehow we have a hierarchy that physical is preferable to mental illness or mental causes and I think doctors and patients both have that prejudice and as doctors we often don't want to miss a physical so you know I see someone who's got symptoms I think of burnout and actually it's they've got an overactive thyroid I'm going to feel pretty bad about missing that and giving them the wrong diagnosis so so quite often a patient is more likely to want a physical cause. I'm really tired. Is that because I'm anemic or because my thyroid's a problem? Um, and as doctors, that's actually quicker and easier. You know, patient says, oh, I'm a bit tired. Oh, let's do some blood tests. But, you know, so it's very understandable why it goes that way. And, and often it's appropriate to do blood tests. It's a little harder to say, have you thought that my, maybe you've got too much on your plate? Or tell me what's going on in your life. You know, it takes a bit longer and patients might not be expecting it always. But I mean, most GPs will do that and will get there, and it's you know it's very rewarding when a patient starts to realise that actually they're taking on too much. But but sometimes you you know you have to reflect stuff back, back stuff. Sometimes I'll have to say, well, tell me tell me about your working week. What, what hours do you work? And then you're starting to find that someone you know they leave to go to work at six and they get back at seven, and then they turn their laptop on and they turn it off at eleven, and they do the same at weekends. And then you say, and you wonder why you're tired. <laughs> um, and um, it's amazing how much people can just normalize that and not yeah. think that, that, you know, at some point, I'll, I'll often use the phrase, I think your body's trying to tell you something that it's not happy with what you're making it do.
0: Yeah, I mean, I definitely, I was a lawyer and in that culture, it wasn't just normal. It was almost celebrated as well that you were sending emails at one in the morning. It must mean that you're a really good lawyer. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, how much are there systems in place that are really keeping this i guess status quo of people getting burnt out? I wondered, like even just thinking back to school days of giving children certificates for hundred percent attendance and and those sort of systems as mm. well as as in the workplace is are there things that we could do to help the individuals?
1: I mean, definitely you know what do we reward we reward the sort of measurable and the external things like exam results that sort of thing how often do you get a certificate a really meaningful we don't actually want a certificate for this but you know kindness how much is kindness celebrated um, when actually i think kindness is and uh, cultivating kindness in yourself is actually one of the things that can make us most resilient um, which is interesting because often people who burn out might be too kind in a sense in that they're always looking out for other people but that's not necessarily the same as kindness that might just be you might be doing that out of guilt or duty or other reasons whereas cultivating the practice of being kind to other people I think helps to keep us calmer helps us make it easier to be kind to ourselves and, and that's as much you know just letting someone out when you're driving speaking nicely to someone not shouting all that sort of thing so, I, I think how, as a society, do we celebrate those sorts of things more? I, I don't know, but we're definitely in a society that celebrates external rewards like exam success, number of likes on social media, you know, amount you get paid, car you drive, all those, which is all just fluff and nonsense, really.
0: I love the idea that cultivating kindness can help us build resilience. Are there any other things? Um, that you feel could add to resilience or add to us not reaching the stage of burnout? Like, What can we do when things are going fairly well?
1: I think, so there's what you could do generally in the here and now. That There's one thing that I, I often find this hard to talk to patients because it's not something you can necessarily change very easily. And for some people, the, this has been taken, never, never, they've never had this or it's been taken away from them through bereavement for instance. But one of the things that I think makes people most resilient is meaningful relationships. Um, You don't need many, but you need someone who really understands you and you can be real with. And, and that's, there's good evidence for this as well as, you know, it makes sense to my soul that that's important. And in my own personal life, I think, what is it that makes me resilient? It's, it's, you know, particularly in my marriage more than anything, um, but they, I don't know if you're aware of the Harvard happiness study. Um, so for your listeners who you might not be yeah. aware, this is a study that's been going on over 70 years looking at tracking the lives of, and it, originally men who went, graduated from Harvard. Then they realized that was just one type of person. So they, they took people from the, from Harlem to have a sort of different socioeconomic balance. And eventually they cottoned on that women are people too. And they started following the wives and partners of these men. And they followed their physical health. They did all sorts of checkups every couple of years, and it's been going for over 70 years. And the things that were best associated with a healthy, happy, long life were a couple of obvious ones, don't smoke and don't drink too much, and then having a meaningful relationship. So if we're starting out in life and thinking, what do I want to do to, to thrive and live a good life? I would say invest in that from an early stage, and that again is where kindness is important. You know, if you two people that are being kind to each other all the time, it's going to be a good relationship. Um, so, so that I think is fundamental. But you can't necessarily change that overnight. Um, and if you've been bereaved, you know, what do you do? Um, but and it's not all about marriage. You know, it doesn't have to be a marriage or partnership. So, what what do you do here and now? What what might I talk with patients about? I I think. I think sustainability in your week is a really key thing for me. Um, sustainability in your year, that you do remember to take holidays. But if you take a holiday and you have two weeks of completely resting and then you go back to a complete mania, it, you're going to burn out between your holidays. So how does your week look like? Is there space to breathe in it? It's really key. And and I think what that looks like is for different people. So for me, I don't have much space to breathe on my clinical days. So I do three long 12-hour days in practice. There's some space, you know, we have a coffee time together every day. Um, So actually I do, you know, at least stop for a moment. And, you know, on a Friday we often have lunch together. But a lot of the time I'm just hard at it. Quite often I'm eating my my lunch, you know, at my desk looking at pathology results or whatever I'm doing. But my week is sustainable. So if I had five days like that, I wouldn't give myself six months. And, and yet in the week, I have two days of the week as well as the weekends where it's slower, where I can catch up on work, but at a slower pace and where I can either take a break or I can do things like this podcast or writing or, you know, and teaching, which is at a different pace. And so through my week, I've always feel like we've got space to breathe. And I, I think that's really crucial. Um, whereas if you look ahead and you're trying to jam every bit of space with productivity, then you're heading for trouble.
0: And if you're heading for trouble, what are the sort of warning signs that you might say, do you think?
1: Um, so, I mean, they'd probably be different for different people, but it, it can be quite helpful if if you think you might be praying to burn out to ask the people who know you, what are what are your tells, what are your shows, if you like? Um, but often it will be, um, irritability, um, sort of compassion fatigue, feeling like you're less, you have less capacity to be patient with other people, to, um, you know, be gentle with other people. Um, it might be, you know, just quicker to react where, you know, something comes at you and, and you sort of react to it rather than respond to it. Um, it might be symptoms of anxiety just waking up with a feeling of dread every morning. Um, I mean a, a certain amount of anxiety is normal and its we all have that it helps keep us safe you know, if you're not you know I, I was slightly anxious before this podcast but if I hadn't been anxious at all about it I might have forgotten that we were even meeting because I'd be so laid back so you need a certain amount of anxiety but being filled with with dread of anxiety um is where you know, that becomes problematic and so if you're just getting a lot more anxious than normal um, or maybe poor sleep or maybe you're dealing with your stress in an unhealthy way you know you're starting to have a drink every night when you get home when you wouldn't normally do that um, or you're comfort eating or you're, um, failing to eat you know you're, you're not managing to eat regularly because you're just too busy those those sorts of things
0: and tell me a little bit about your book about anxiety. You mentioned anxiety then. What what are you writing and who is that for?
1: Yeah, so I'm writing, um, it's going to be a while before it's out, <laughs> um, but um, um, particularly about the idea that anxiety makes sense. So again, this has come from things patients say to me repeatedly. So a bit like people often say, I'm not the sort of person to get depressed. People often come to me and say, I know it's stupid. I know it doesn't make sense, but I get anxious about this. Um, and so that led me to think, actually, you know, when you really understand anxiety, it makes a lot of sense. So for instance, someone might say, I get so anxious going to the supermarket. I know it's stupid. And what they mean is, I know I'm not likely to be physically harmed. There's nothing dangerous in the supermarket. Um, but actually they become... Um, conditioned to be anxious in the supermarket because in the past they've been anxious or had a panic attack when they were there and they felt they couldn't get out. Um, and so far from being stupid, if you consciously or unconsciously know that going to a supermarket is going to cause you to have a panic attack, then actually it's entirely logical to not want to go to a supermarket because having a panic attack is tremendously unpleasant. So if you know that an unpleasant thing is going to happen to you in a supermarket. Why would you want to go? Um, so it actually does make a lot of sense. But on the other hand, the the big mistake I see people making with anxiety all the time is avoidance. Anxiety wants to keep us safe, so it kind of tells us avoid anything that makes you anxious. And the trouble is, the more you avoid stuff, the harder it gets to do it. Um, so if the main reason why you're not going to supermarket is because you're anxious and therefore you avoid going, you then get out of practice and, and your, the association of the supermarket with danger and anxiety becomes a stronger association and therefore it becomes even harder to go. It, it becomes more powerful. And so if you're going to do anything about it, the, the first thing you need is to decide, Actually, I'm fed up with not being able to go to a supermarket. You need to be cross about it in a sense and annoyed that you can't go um, because it takes quite a lot of hard work to get there. Um, and then, then you need to plan and plan a strategy. And one of the problems with anxiety is it's always think short term. It, the anxiety, the feelings of anxiety just, just always tell us do something now to take away these feelings. Either by running away from the supermarket, avoiding going, having that glass of wine, um, comfort eating, all the, the, the things that we do that kind of in the short term today take away anxiety. But what you need is a long-term strategy of thinking, well, how am I going to get to a point where I can go to the supermarket? And that will involve, um, that will involve planning and, and steps to it. I, one of the things I've, um, have written about in the book is I, I call it anxiety rehab. Um, Because if if you'd injured your, say you had a spinal injury and you weren't able to walk and you had to learn how to walk again, you would have to go through the pain of physiotherapy um, and you would have to do lots of exercises, which you didn't want to do and weren't a goal in themselves and were painful and difficult and quite a lot of effort. But eventually the goal of walking again would be to get you there. And so the same thing with doing something you've been avoiding You kind of need to think of exercises to build up to going to the supermarket. So it might be that, you know, even going to walk to the supermarket makes you anxious. You know, leaving the house to go to the supermarket makes you anxious. So even before you start thinking about going and doing a shop in the supermarket, you need to think, well, how am I going to build up to that? What's the equivalent of the, you know, the simple physio that someone can do to strengthen their legs? Well, it might be just choosing to go out the door. Um, walk down the road a bit and turn turn around and go back home. But that was your exercise for the day. And the more you do that, you do it not because you want to do it, but because your goal is to go to the supermarket. So the more you do that, the the less anxious you become doing it because it starts to, to go back into your comfort zone. Okay, I'm, I'm comfortable doing that. And then you extend your walk so that you walk as far as the supermarket. And you just decide, okay, today my exercise is I'm going to go to the supermarket, have a look at it, um, and then I'm going to turn around and go home again. And that then means that when you then get to the next bit, which is going inside, maybe with a friend, um, and then eventually getting to the point of going and buying your, shop, your shopping, you've built up to it. And at each stage, you've taken your anxiety with you. You knew you were going to be anxious, but you've been in control of your anxiety and not let it be in control of you. And that way you gain the power. And the anxiety no longer has the same hold on you. And, you know, a year or two later, you think, goodness me, why did I even used to get worried going to the supermarket? But it it needs long term strategy and planning. And that that requires a lot of education, I think, which is what I'm trying to achieve with writing about it.
0: And so this is definitely geared for the patients and general public rather than the professionals, this book.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the book I've written on the consultation is very much for, for professionals. I mean,
0: I read it. I found it quite interesting, yeah. actually. Yeah. Well, I do do some research. But yeah. I found it very interesting in that it I hadn't really thought about that dynamic of the consultation before between a doctor and a patient. And I think it's quite helpful so that we can approach it to help the doctor as well. The other thing that I found quite interesting about it, I think, was as I was did five years at university as a lawyer. And I think I had a conference exam where we had an actor and it was very contrived. But at no point did we really learn those soft skills and those (laughs) consultation ones. And then within qualifying, like within a few days, I was in a prison talking to some quite hardened criminal getting information. And over the years, I was dealing with suicidal clients and some real disturbed people. And I found that Though yes, there was nothing in my university that helped me with that. It came from life experience, so I was quite interested in in what training doctors did have in those sort of skills. but it sounded like they have a little bit more than lawyers.
1: Yeah, well, certainly GPs do, and I'm not sure that secondary care doctors do so much, you know, a bit in medical school um, but and I find it so interesting, you know, because we communicate and communicated ever since we could talk, we can assume that we know what we're doing and we're good at it. When actually, you know, you really have to think about what you're doing and how small changes can make it a difference. So, for instance, you know, at, at the end of a consultation, the, the doctor and the patient have made a plan and the doctor might say, is that OK? And there's a world of difference between saying, is that OK? And saying, how does that sound? Because if that's okay, is that okay? The the patient can only answer yes or no. And they might not have the courage to tell you that it's not okay because there's this power dynamic between the doctor and the patient where often the doctor feels like they have more power, so it can be harder to say, no, it's not okay. Whereas if you say, how does that sound? The patient can't just say yes or no. They have to say how they really feel about it. And if they say, yeah, that sounds great, then that's fantastic. As a doctor, I really know that they're happy with it and I get a nice little pat on the back that I've done a good consultation. Um, but it's easier for them to say, no, it's not okay. So what I've just found so fascinating since becoming a GP is how tiny changes in what we say and those tools in the communication and the consultation can make a big difference. And, and I think, I mean, some non, you know, some patients have read the book and it's not a hard read. It's not an academic book. So, um, the thing they might find interesting, so the whole premise of the book is every consultation only really has two um, two objectives you need to achieve. One is to work out what matters to the patient and what matters to the doctor as the expert. And then the other is to decide together what to do about it. It's called a teller two houses because I use the imagery of two houses to illustrate those two objectives. But if you're a patient and you're ever going to see a doctor, ask yourself, what is it that matters to me? And make sure that you tell the doctor that. Now, it might be that what matters to you actually, you know, isn't what you can, you know, it may matter to you that you think, well, I must have this. And actually, there's good reasons why you can't have it or it's not the best thing for you. So you need to be ready to hear what the doctor thinks about that. But if as a doctor, I don't know what matters to you. And I don't manage, I mean, I should have the skills to find that out. And that's what the con- good communication is all about. But if I don't manage to find it out, and at the end you leave thinking, oh, I was really, really hoping you would suggest this, and we never got to talk about it, then we haven't really hit the nail on the head. So,
0: Yeah, no, I found it interesting. But sorry, that was going off on a tangent, because I was just yeah. thinking about your when you were explaining about anxiety and how you could approach working on that and I just wondered thinking back to when you were talking about those characteristics before of um, you mentioned for example the high standards in burnout mm-hmm. and maybe taking on not wanting to let people down and I just wondered how do how can we approach those sort of issues
1: Yeah, I think I think that's really important to think about because when you learn that burnout means you know, you're more prone to burn out if you have high standards and you're always trying to please people and you're not very good at saying no. It's easy to then hear, well, the solution is drop your standards, don't care what people think, and just say no and be selfish. And and there are two problems with that. One is we don't want the world of selfish people. And the other is the sort of person who does burn out doesn't want to be selfish.
0: No, so that adds a whole new gonna... layer of guilt, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so they're going to reject that message anyway. So I think I think it's all about becoming more discerning about what you say yes to and what you say no to. So, you know, there are some things that someone's doing that actually is either really important, maybe it's childcare or looking after an elderly relative. or And actually that's really important. It's stressful, but it's really important. Or there might be things at work that are stressful, but actually, you know, this is what gives you um, purpose. and you know what you really enjoy doing and, and very important to you but inevitably there are some things that we do for the wrong reasons um that we can you know actually say no to and it's a relief because we didn't actually want to do that um we just never quite got around to saying no to it so i think trying to be discerning about what do i say yes to what do i say no to um and in that, taking a long view as well, I, I love the um, expression, beware distant elephants, which is where an elephant in the distance looks very small, but close up, it becomes very big. So it's very easy to say yes to something that's in six months' time. Um, <laughs> and as it comes closer and closer, you think, why did I agree to this? You know, I, it's not my priority. I'm not that interested in it. It's now become this huge monster that I've got to face. Um, and yet it's now too late to say no because I'm committed. So sometimes we've got to learn to say no to stuff you know, that's further down the line. And, and just to think, how much do I want on my plate? Um, you know, a bit like that, going back to that computer analogy. You don't have to clear your hard drive down to you know 10% capacity. Actually, you know, we want to be busy and thriving and purposeful, and that's what Makes, that's what life's all about, isn't it? But it's about about not so filling our plate that we get overwhelmed. I don't know if I've answered your
0: yes. question. Yes, no, I hadn't heard the distant elephant analogy before, so I'm making a note of that. I think I need a poster of that on my wall.
1: <laughs> the, other, the other analogy I like that's similar, which I, I don't know where it's from, but it's not my original thought, is the idea of putting things into importance and urgent, So you can, everything... You can categorise as being urgent or not urgent, and important or not important. So, urgent basically just means it's it, it's on a short time scale; it's about to happen. So, for instance, you know, just before we started this podcast, this podcast became urgent because it was the next thing in my um, my calendar. So, then the question is: is it important? So, yeah, it's an important thing I wanted to do. So, therefore, that's last week. It was not urgent, but it was important, and now just before we started it was urgent and important so that's fine but the the two boxes to watch out for are the urgent unimportant things we just need to get rid of them so years ago when I first started in my practice it was common practice for doctors to talk to drug reps thankfully we don't do that anymore but every Friday I would have a drug rep that arrived just just was set up before I started it was expected that a drug rep would have a weekly appointment with me and So every Friday when the drug rep was in the waiting room wanting a chat, that became urgent because they were sitting there and didn't want to keep them waiting. But it was never important. And it took me a while to realise I just had to say no to that because I had no interest in talking to drug reps. Um, And this urgent, unimportant thing was pushing out things that weren't as urgent but were much more important. So if there are things that become urgent just because they're about to happen and they're unimportant to you, we've just got to get rid of as many of those as possible. And then the box to really care about is the not urgent, but important. So, for instance, time out, time when you stop and rest, time to, you know, you obviously like going outdoors, doing outdoor stuff. You know, for me, I'm going walking, gardening, art, those sorts of things are good for my soul. But they're never going to be urgent because if something more, you know, something more pressing is always going to want to push them out. You know, no one's going to die If I fail to spend some time doing art. And yet, if I always get it pushed out, then I will suffer. So the not urgent but important, which are things that we do to look after ourselves, or time with family, or actually spending time with your children rather than working, or you know, be what it may be, those are the ones you've got to protect. And the urgent, unimportant we've got to be in.
0: That's really helpful because it's definitely the first ones that get taken off my list. Even though we know or I know how important it is. So I did force myself out today and fail much better because of it. But the my first thought is I'm too busy, got <laughs> too much yeah. to do. <laughs> oh, Ian and I have been there, I've been to Burnout and don't want to go back. I mean, yeah. how, how are we doing as a nation? I feel like there's so much information out there. For example, what you put out, but also I have podcasts that are five hours long that tell me everything I need to do. Mm-hmm. Into And and we've got so much information, but it doesn't feel that we're getting any healthier with our mental health in terms of the numbers of anxiety and depression and issues. Like, What's happening there?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's exactly the opposite, really, isn't it? Certainly, anxiety mm. is, is very much on the increase. I, I think it's a challenging world to live in. There's so many demands. You know, they're different challenges to years ago. You know, years ago the challenge was trying not to starve to death and die of infectious disease, and thankfully, you know, those challenges are, at least in the UK, are, are mostly not there. Um, but the challenge of just life, men isn't it? The, um you know, paying the bills, remembering to pay the bills, emails, um, you know, demands of social media, all of that is is hard to navigate and and in at us all the time. So, and then we also had COVID, which without doubt caused a lot of stress. Um, It was very fascinating how COVID affected because for some people during lockdown, their mental health really deteriorated because they weren't able to go outside or see people and that was what kept them well um, when all their support structures were taken away. Some people during lockdown, they actually felt calmer and loved going into lockdown because they could avoid everything. All of a sudden, they weren't the, the odd person that didn't want to go to parties or go and do things. Everyone was banned. They were given, not only allowed to not go out, they were told not to go out. But it became a gilded cage that they found very hard to escape from after lockdown because they got so used to not doing things. So I think that's had a big, a big impact. And then, yeah, there is information overload. So again, I think we've got to be discerning as to what, what we listen to, and how much we listen to it, and I, I worry a little bit. Like with mental health diagnoses, you can it can be very helpful to have a diagnosis because it can help you understand yourself. But I think if it's easy to then start to become defined by a label, and then you can either think you can easily think, oh well, I've got a diagnosis of I don't know, maybe it's burnout or ADHD, for instance. And then you start gathering all the information about that and actually overload yourself with too much information. Um, and then the role of burnout or ADHD in your life becomes bigger than it ever needed to be. You know, you you, you don't want to just live your life defined by a label. Um, but the amount of information that you can access can easily add to that. You go to support groups, and which can be helpful, but not if it means everything is now seen through the prism of that mental health diagnosis. When you know you used to just get on with your life and it's a big part of your life, but you know, it shouldn't define you. So, I think that is a problem with the amount of information that's out there as well at the moment.
0: Mm. And, I, in t- what you
1: think.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I do feel a little bit overwhelmed by it. And also, if I wrote down everything that I had been recommended that I should do, that would probably be full time just <laughs> being yeah. well. But, I suppose I choose I choose what works for me I enjoy swimming outdoors so I do that I enjoy getting out in daylight every morning so I enjoy I I do that so pick and choose but I guess also I feel that there's a little bit of a pressure because I know what I should be doing that I feel a little bit guilty for just taking a day off and being quite unhealthy or just doing nothing and so yes I do feel the pressure that we've got this we can constantly be improving and and actually sometimes we just need to be don't we yes
1: yes because some of those activities that are meant to make you resilient you know can become chores in themselves can't they
0: yes um, whereas
1: oh. learning to just sit in the garden and listen to the birds for a bit with your phone off doing nothing can be tremendously good for us so.
0: definitely definitely
1: I'm just going to say, I think also we all, we really need to find our own solutions as well. I always feel that in my consultations, if I can help the patient to come up with their own answer as to what's going to help them, it's much more powerful than something I say. So, you know, for instance, I know that exercise can be helpful for mental health. But if someone said to me, um, you know, you should go to the gym or take up running, um, I'm just not going to do it. <laughs> you know, I like walking. I like gardening. I, I've been to a gym about twice in my life. I've never been so bored or knowed something. I hate gyms, and and that's just not going to work for me. So, whereas if someone said to me, "What could you do that was a bit physical that might help?" I'd be able to give some ideas that I would go and do.
0: Okay, so yeah, so
1: it's different for each person. Yes,
0: yes. and definitely finding something. I mean, if you enjoy it, surely that's got to be <laughs> one of the absolutely. main
1: things. and then it's not a chore. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs>
0: Are there things that you feel, do you feel constricted by your, either the time or your role as a GP where you would like to be getting people outdoors, prescribing other things that just aren't in your cabinet as a GP? And yes, I just wondered whether there was anything that you wish you could do that you couldn't in terms of advice for people.
1: Yeah I think yeah, loads of things. I mean as a GP you're always feeling constrained by lack of time in an appointment. Um, and we do have you can see the same person again and again and again and if you clock up all the time that you've spent together it's quite a lot of time but each appointment's n- n- never long enough. Um, and then probably helping people get to somewhere is what frustrates me. So for instance um, I think what's sometimes called social prescribing is is great helping people know what's out there and there's some great things in fact our practice is um, very involved with setting up a community garden near the practice um, which is just taking off. it's an enormous project and and i know that some of my patients would really benefit from going there but it's quite a an obstacle to overcome to actually get there because if you're anxious then going to a field full of strangers and saying, I've gone for the garden is, is a big deal. It's not very easy. Um, so I think helping someone to actually go is, is what's missing. Um, and there have been some attempts to have people who can actually go alongside and say, right, you know, you'd like to go to the community garden. I'll come pick you up and we'll go and do the session together. And social prescribing has tried to do that a little bit, but the trouble is they're so overstretched that you know it doesn't really happen quite like it used to I mean it used to happen with the mental health team that they you would have a support worker who would take you to that sort of thing Um, and that unfortunately has been stripped back but just so understaffed that people don't have that sort of support so people will more say be told these are the activities you can do and they're kind of left to do it themselves and, and then it doesn't happen. So that's probably one of my biggest
0: frustrations. Yeah, you must be under so much pressure as an NHS at the moment. Mm. I think one of your videos was about silliness, which I quite liked. Like, (laughs) I really, (coughs) um, yes, I just wondered what role kind of that just being silly, finding joy, running around outside, being like a child again. Is that something that is really important for us to do? I,
1: I think so. <laughs> I, I think I think it's fascinating being silly. Um, Michael Palin from the from Monty Python he talks about being silly, and um, and I think it's really valuable. But it's very interesting. What <clears throat> what do you need in order to be silly with someone? I mean, you can be silly on your own and just cheer yourself up them in front of the mirror. But if you're silly with someone, there needs to be a certain amount of trust. There needs to be you know you need to know that you're going to be laughed with, not laughed at. Um, and that you're not just going to be ridiculed or told, "Stop being so silly." It's interesting. We often tell children, "Don't be so silly," and I think you know, actually, you know, there are times when they're being inappropriate. But being silly is a great thing. Um, and maybe it maybe it goes along the, the idea of practicing kindness. If you know, if we're practicing silliness and laughs and not taking ourselves too seriously, and we're practicing just being kind to other people, it kind of stops us stressing so much about our own ego we we get less less about whether or not i'm right and the world's against me it's it's more just about just enjoying life i suppose and not taking ourselves too seriously um and you know it's fascinating to think why why is it that we laugh you know why do we laugh and cry why why have we either evolved or been made depending on how you believe we got here to laugh and cry they're you know, they don't help you hunt or eat or, you know, we can see why we were made to enjoy sex because, you know, that's important for reproduction. But laughing and crying doesn't have an obvious immediate reason. And yet both of them are so good for us. Um, and so they're just so cathartic. They help release tension. You know, you don't need a scientific study to know they're good for you. They just are <laughs> And I know, you know you've, you've had some of your guests talk about bereavement, for instance. Mm-hmm. And um, one of my my old senior partner, who's retired thirteen, fourteen years ago, was a brilliant um, family doctor, very wise man. And he, I remember him saying to me, "If you can pick bereavement up, pick your grief up, and put it down, you're probably going to do okay." Um, and that's a bit of advice I often give to patients. And what, I, what he meant by that was. If you can allow yourself to cry sometimes, but you can also allow yourself to laugh sometimes, that's a good combination. Um, And when I see people struggle in the, particularly in the early days of grief, it's where either they, you you don't have to cry when you're bereaved, but it's when someone actually desperately does want to cry, but they won't let themselves, or they feel guilty at smiling or laughing because how can I be happy when. You know, this person's not here anymore, um, and yet, if somehow families or individuals, when they're bereaved, can do both, then that's that sets them up well for that very difficult grief journey that that they're on. Um, and and I, you know, I don't know why we evolved or were made to laugh and cry, but I'm very grateful. For
0: <laughs> Could it come back to those meaningful relationships and how we how we Stay together in tribes.
1: I think so. Yeah, because you know you can cry on your own, but and there's a place for that. But crying with someone who really cares about you is um, is very bonding. And and having a you know splitting your sides laughing with people <laughs> makes a big difference. I mean, you know, when we have coffee together um, at work, actually, it's the times when we all just end up laughing that <laughs> do us the most good. Um, <laughs>
0: so oh it must have such a yeah stressful busy time plus plus also the subject matter of what you're um dealing with day in day out and so what are the key things that you do to protect yourself and keep you on track me personally yes
1: yeah um i think I mean, having good relationships with colleagues makes a matter of difference. I, I suppose I'm, I'm just very lucky with that. But I think we all invest in that, looking out for each other. Um, I think having that sustainable week. So my pattern of my week of three intense days, I can do fine because I have weekends when I'm usually not working. Um, and Wednesday and Thursday when I can do things that are very, very different. I think having a balance between caring and creating. So it, it took me a long time to realise as a doctor that one thing I never do is create something. I never stand back and go, oh, I made that. Um, and that actually the creative process is very important for me and my well-being. I find it very stimulating. Um, now, if I switched job and became, you know, professional creator, an artist or a woodworker or something, um, even if I were ever good enough to do that, I would then miss the people contact and the caring. So it's not like I'm in the wrong job, but it took me a while to realise that being a doctor does not fulfil my creative need. And so all the things I do outside of my work that do me good are generally creative. It's art or gardening or woodwork or writing or creating videos. It's all stuff where I've made some. Um, So for instance, with creating the videos on social media, for as long as... I find that stimulating and fun to do rather than chore of I've got to get something out, then it's doing me good. But if I get to a point where I'm thinking, Oh, you know, I've got to do another video you know, then I'm I know I'm in a bit of trouble.
0: That's really helpful, yes. And and again I felt very similar and and missed I, I found that my job was very black and white with all that paperwork as a lawyer and I miss colour and I started my Instagram just to take running photos <laughs> just yeah. something colourful please <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, thank-
1: I do worry about lawyers I worry about lawyers and I worry about um, ministers
0: oh really so
1: in terms of fascinating work so law i think they just have there is just this culture of everyone's got to work hard you've just got to do it and the harder you work the more you can show your hard work a bit like you were saying and that's that i think it's a culture that i hope will change one day but it doesn't seem to be shifting and for ministers it's more just looking after the flock and never wanting to let anyone down 24 7 Mm. always responding to you know someone being taken to hospital or So it's a very different reason why I worry about those two professions, but those are my two top professions I worry about.
0: <laughs> well, I'm a classic burnout lawyer. <laughs> I tick every single box that you've ever mentioned. So <laughs> as I say, I wish I'd known that before. And I did have a, a really interesting, um, my Inns of court arranged a session with um, Dr. Bill Mitchell, which again talked about high standards and overlapped with a lot of what you were saying and, and it's yes, I fully take it on board. It was just too late for me. Yeah. <laughs> but I think he he talked about being good enough. He's like, well, yes, you can go out and spend three days trying to find the most perfect Christmas present for a family member, or you could just get something that's good enough. They'll be happy. You can be happy. Go with that.
1: <laughs> and I I think that that brings me back to something I was going to say when you're talking about high high standards and how to change what we're thinking that. It's knowing when good enough is good enough, you know, because if, you know, if I get a highly abnormal blood result phoned through, I can't just think, well, you know, (laughs) responding to it tomorrow, that'll be good enough. You know, it won't. That patient, you know, needs action now. I've got to set really high standards for that. Um, But it's been discerning and thinking, actually, you know, there might be other tasks at work where it's perfectly reasonable to go home now and do it tomorrow or at home you know how just how clean does the house have to be Um, you know I don't want to be in a pigsty but good enough is good enough you know it's that sort of where where can we drop our standards and it's fine
0: yes I think for me it was inviting people around for meals and then spending the whole day trying to cook the most perfect meal and they'd arrive and I'd be exhausted and stressed (laughs) (laughs) perhaps then I could have dropped my standards a little bit
1: yeah, I just <laughs> the lasagna the week before shoved it in the freezer and got it out. Yeah. I'm I said, It might be that baking all day and cooking all day just gives them joy and, you know, they love all of that. So that's where different people need different solutions, isn't it?
0: Yeah. No, I used to, well, I still find that creative. Um, so it's definitely something that I like and should make more time for. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm gonna add it yeah, to my to-do enough. list plus my... <laughs> Cold water and mad exercise and this and that. <laughs> uh, Martin, thank you so much for your time and yes, everything that you put out as well. And I can't wait for your book. I'll have to get you on again when you've got your book out. Is that, is that going to be next year? Have we got any dates?
1: I, I would think probably it'd be something like about 18 months. <laughs> okay. I need to finish it and then it'll be with a publisher and they'll need to. They need time so maybe maybe 12 months if i'm doing well but yeah so, <laughs> so there will be plenty of time elapsed and then you could get me back
0: <laughs> it's important um, but at the moment it's not that urgent
1: <laughs> well well no the aspects of it are urgent i've got to get something to by next monday so that's urgent and important um, but um i want to get it right as well
0: so. well good luck with that and thank, thank you, you for all your help and your time today
1: Thank you and thank you for your podcast and the help it is for people listening.
0: Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Resilience Rising podcast. If you have enjoyed this episode, please do help people find us by hitting subscribe, leaving a review or sharing us with others. Thank you so much and see you next time on the Resilience Rising podcast.